Good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. For many Christians, uh, 2020 has intensified the conviction that we are living in the end times or the last days. And for many Christians, the end times, what they expect, are times of unprecedented suffering, what many have called the Great Tribulation, marked by famine and wars and pestilence and plagues. And our text this morning, Daniel 9, is a linchpin in at least one of those eschatological views. Eschatology is the doctrine of last things from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. But are we actually living in the end times? I think that several of the major eschatological views that are held within the church could be characterized as pessimistic. This is how author Gary North explains. He says, as systems of gospel proclamation, several of these systems teach that the gospel of Christ will not exercise any major influence in the world before Christ's return. And as systems of historical understanding, each holds that the Bible teaches that there are prophetically determined, irresistible trends downward toward chaos in the outworking and development of history. And therefore, as systems for the promotion of Christian discipleship, mission, each of these systems dissuades the church from anticipating and laboring for wide-scale success in influencing the world for Christ during this age. Now, to be fair, North admits all evangelical Christians are optimistic in the ultimate sense that God will miraculously win the war against sin and Satan. It'll just be at the end of history by direct supernatural intervention at the second coming of Christ. In the end, all Christians believe that. But as far as the progress of the gospel in history, in time and space, I think that most eschatological systems are pessimistic. Now, let me just give you sampling. These are from three of the major eschatological views. One author says this, We are witnessing in this 20th century, so not this one, but the last one, the collapse of civilization. It is obvious that we are advancing toward the end of the age. I can see no bright prospects through the efforts of man for the earth and its inhabitants. I believe that author has since passed away, and now his kids and grandkids are alive. George Eldon Ladd said last century, in spite of the fact that God had invaded history in Christ, and in spite of the fact that it was to be the mission of Jesus to disciple, uh, the mission of Jesus' disciples to evangelize the entire world, the world would remain an evil place. False Christs would arise who would lead many astray, Wars, strife, and persecution would continue. Wickedness would abound so as to chill the love of many. Mainly pessimistic about the success of the gospel on earth. One more perspective. This author writes, The majority will ever be on the side of the evil one. And it's possible that that kind of pessimism sounds familiar to you, and that nothing there necessarily strikes you as out of place. That, that might be consistent with what 
you've been taught, what you've grown up hearing. But my aim this morning is to convince you from Daniel chapter 9 that God and His gospel, that Christ and His church are victorious in history on this earth. And I want to persuade you to be optimistic Christians, an optimistic church, optimistic not only about the final victory after history, which, praise God, will happen, but also about the triumph of Christ and his church that will unfold in history to the glory of God. And so I want to invite you to look with me at Daniel chapter 9, and I'm going to read this whole chapter through, and so as is our custom. If you would stand with me out of reverence for God's word, if you are physically able, and we will read Daniel 9. This is God's holy and authoritative word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us Open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is the righteous, is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned 
We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. You are the God who speaks, who makes and keeps covenant with his people. And so we pray, oh, our God, speak to us and reveal yourself to us through this word that Jesus may be magnified in our hearts and minds, in our lives. Amen. You may be seated. So because of, I believe, confusion and misinterpretation of the vision at the end of this chapter, what's called the vision of the 70 weeks, uh, and in particular those last two verses, 26 and 27, many take Daniel 9 to be an eschatological prophecy of doom. The world is getting worse and worse. There will be wars to the end of the world. Uh, I want to show you this morning that the message of Daniel 9 is not Antichrist is coming. The message of Daniel 9 is the Christ is coming. And the message of the church to the world is not the world is ending, the sky is falling, Antichrist is coming. 
the message of the church to the world today is the Christ has come. And that makes all the difference. So here are three reasons from Daniel 9 to be optimistic that that gospel and that Christ will triumph on earth. And each of these reasons is rooted in who God is and how he works in history. This is who he's always been and he never changes. This is how he's always worked and he doesn't change. First reason to be optimistic. God always promises hope and a future to those who trust him. The structure of Daniel 9 is really simple. In verses 4 through 19, Daniel prays, and what a prayer it is. And then in verses 20 through 27, God directly answers Daniel's prayer. And verses 1 through 3 set it up with some crucial context. There were two things that prompted Daniel to pray this particular prayer. One was Daniel was reading Scripture. Scripture always leads us back to God in prayer. We pray Scripture back to God. Daniel was reading. Verse 2, he says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books... So just think, this is Daniel, a prophet who has interpreted dreams for mighty kings, received dreams and visions himself, and he is reading Scripture. Apparently, having dreams and visions doesn't mean you don't need the Word of God. He's reading in the books, and in the books he reads the number of years that, according to the Word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. That stirs something in him because, if you recall from the first few verses, this is the first year of Darius, the Mede, which means the kingdom of Babylon just fell. So Daniel probably read Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, which says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Years, then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. And Daniel probably reads that and goes, Whoa, Babylon just fell. That's what God said was going to happen. And then he probably continued to Jeremiah 29, 10 through 13, where he read, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. So there's a condition there. You will pray. You will call upon me. So what does Daniel do? He looks around what he's read in Scripture, what he sees happening in Babylon, and he prays. He's not passive. He's not a hyper-Calvinist sitting on his couch like, well, okay, Sarah, Sarah, it's just going to happen automatically. No, God said we were going to pray. I'm going to pray. And so he prays, and the language and structure of his prayer indicates that Daniel sees the world. He sees all of human history through the lens of God's covenant. This is how God relates to people covenantally. In verses 4 through 11, he confesses Israel's sin. We read it already, so I'm not going to go back through all of it, but verse 5 sums it up. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. He pours out this confession of sin. Our kings, our fathers, our princes, we have sinned against you and disobeyed your rules. He starts with confession of sin, and then in verses 11 through 14, he acknowledges that everything that happened to Israel and to Judah and to Jerusalem was perfectly righteous. It was God's just judgment in keeping with the exact terms of the covenant that God made with Israel. 
the blessings and the curses of the covenant, they're spelled out in detail. If you go read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, and you look at the warnings, what God said would happen to those who broke the covenant, then you see, oh, this is exactly what God warned them generations in advance would happen. And so Daniel can pray in verse 12, he has confirmed his words. The judgment, the wrath that was poured out, it just confirmed all of his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. Righteous means God keeps covenant. He keeps his word. He is true to himself. And in verses 15 through 19, then Daniel's prayer turns and he asks for mercy. But get this. Daniel grounds his request for mercy, not in the righteousness of the people, obviously, because they have not been faithful to the covenant. He grounds his request for mercy in the righteousness of God. The very righteousness of God by which God judged Israel for their sin is the righteousness and justice that Daniel appeals to for mercy. How can you appeal to the same attribute for both justice and mercy? Aren't those opposite things? Look what he says in verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away. What in the world? Verse 17. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. Verse 19, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act, delay not for your own sake, for the sake of your name, for your glory, for your praise, for your fame, O my God, because your city, your people are called by your name. God, it's your name and reputation that's on the line here. It's your glory, and that's what I'm appealing to. How could Daniel ask for mercy by appealing to the righteousness of God that resulted in judgment and destruction and exile? Here's how. Because God's covenant with Israel not only included curses for disobedience, but all the way back at the beginning with Moses at Sinai, the covenant also included promises of restoration from exile after the judgment that God would bring if they were unfaithful. And written right into the terms of the covenant is, if you don't keep it, these curses will come upon you, and even then, even then, I will be God. Listen, I, we, we could go to so many places. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, Jeremiah. We could go to so many, and I wish we had time to read all of them. I'm going to read to you from Leviticus 26, 40 through 45, and even here I'm going to cut a few things. But here's the promise in the covenant, way back when. But if, after all the sin and cursing and exile and judgment, if they confess their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant. And yet for all that, speaking of their sin, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will, for their sake, remember the covenant that I might be their God. I am the Lord. You see that? Just as destruction and exile were part of the curse of the covenant, so redemption and restoration after exile was also a covenant promise. And that's why Daniel is bold and confident in prayer to ask God 
for mercy. He knows the character of God. He knows God's covenant-keeping ways. And he says, if God kept covenant like that and punished us just as he said he would, he'll keep covenant with us now if we turn to him and seek him. Daniel, I mean, you, if you think things are somewhat bad in our country, Daniel lived through the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and they were not nice people. Like, infants died in the streets from hunger. Women boiled their own children because they were starving to death. Just stuff you can't even imagine. Daniel lived through that. He's lived in exile now for decades. That's the lowest of the low. And even there, he looks at the covenant and he goes, God is merciful. God is faithful. God gives us a hope and a future. That's who he is. Judgment is not his last word. And so Daniel could pray, verse 4, You are the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's who you are. That's what I'm appealing to. And so he's optimistic about Israel's future because he knew God's character and covenant that God himself had staked his own name and his own glory on giving his people a hope and a future. So God always gives the promise of hope and a future to those who trust him. Second reason to be optimistic about the triumph of the gospel and the church, and Christ on earth is this. God always does more than we can even ask or imagine. God always does more than we can even ask or imagine. Verses 4 through 19, Daniel prays. And then in verses 20 through 27, God answers in a unique way. It's not every time you pray you get a response like this, not even in Scripture, right? But Daniel has an angelic visitor who brings an answer from God. And before we even get to the vision that God sends in response to the prayer, did did you catch Gabriel's words to Daniel in verse 23? At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word was sent out. I mean, you didn't even get through your confession. You didn't even get the words of confession off your lips and a word was sent, Daniel. That's unbelievable. And I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. That's crucial before we get to the vision because there are some hermeneutics, some approaches to this vision where people think it's a vision primarily of doom and destruction and despair. It's not. It is a favorable answer. Daniel asks for mercy, and he gets more mercy than he even imagined. And we know it's a favorable response because of that. It was sent out before he even finished the confession. You are greatly loved. Before we get the details of the response, we get God's disposition, which is favorable. Many commentators call this vision now. Uh, one of the most difficult in all of the Old Testament. So we move forward with a little bit of awareness. Uh, one commentator even calls this vision a dismal swamp of all the speculation and different takes and maybe it means this and maybe it means that. That he's a, You pile up all those interpretations, it's just a dismal swamp. Another says the interpretations of this vision are almost legion. So I'm not going to catalog for you all of those interpretations. But I want to frame it there. The key to understanding this vision is to remember that it is given as a favorable response from God to Daniel's covenantal confession and covenantal appeal for mercy. It is an unbelievably gracious, generous response from God beyond what Daniel asked or imagined. And it begins in verse 24 with these words, 70 weeks are decreed. 
Okay, so the Hebrew word for weeks there just means seven. Seventy sevens are decreed. If you're looking in the NIV, I think that's what it says there. Seventy sevens. How much is that? You're going to have to do a little math with me here. 490. The question is 490 what? So quick recap of the significance of the number seven. You got to sit up and pay close attention. I don't want to lose you here. This is kind of, this is important. God created the world in seven days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so God gave his people Israel as a sign of the covenant, the seventh day as a day of rest, to express their trust in his provision by not working. When you don't work, you're saying, it'll It'll be provided. It'll be taken care of. And so the seventh day was a day of rest to worship God just as God rested from his work on the seventh day. But did you know that also Israel was commanded to observe a Sabbath year every seventh year? Can you imagine taking an entire year off? And God promised, I will so bless you in those years leading up to that seventh year, four, five, six, that you will have enough. You won't even have to plant anything in your fields in the seventh year, you'll be living on the produce of the abundant blessing I give you in the years leading up to that. So take an entire year off every seventh year. And then, did you know that every seven sets of seven years, after the 49th year, Israel was commanded to observe what's called a jubilee. Leviticus 25.8 refers to it as every seven weeks of years. Weeks of years. It's a week of years. Well, a set of seven years. And every seven set of seven years, after the 49th year, the 50th year was a time to proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be for you a jubilee. So it was a time of restoration and redemption and restitution. Sabbath day, Sabbath year, jubilee. These were all signs of God's covenant with his people. Okay? So when Israel broke the covenant, they didn't observe the jubilees. They didn't observe the Sabbath years. They didn't observe the Sabbath day, for that matter, not in any real meaningful way of worship during their decline. So when God promised judgment to them, it was stated in terms of Sabbath rest. Listen to 2 Chronicles 36. You can also see this in Leviticus 26. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20 says this. He, that's the king of Babylon, took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. What was happening while Judah was in captivity for 70 years in Babylon? The land got its rest. 70 years of rest. How long did it lay desolate? Seventy years. One whole year for each of those Sabbath years in a set of ten jubilees. All right? You can write it down on paper and do the math later. All of that math connects God's answer that comes here in this vision to Daniel's prayer. Remember what prompted the prayer? I read in Jeremiah, seventy years were going to pass. I prayed to God. The answer comes, seventy weeks. Seventy sets of seven. Seventy Weeks of years are decreed for you. So Jeremiah's looking at the clock. Time's almost up. God has been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful now. And in response, God comes and tells Daniel that something more incredible than anything he could imagine is going to happen within the clock's about to start again, another set of 77s or 490 years. So what exactly would happen? God's anointed king would arrive. And he would triumph over sin according to all of the promises and all of the prophecies and everything foretold in the law 
and the prophets. Daniel prayed for return. God's people. God, bring your people back to your place with your presence. And God says to Daniel, the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to come and accomplish the ultimate redemption. Verses 24 through 27 are just saturated, like overflowing with direct and indirect references to the Messiah, the anointed one. There are so many that we won't even get through all of them or do any justice to these, but let me show you a few. So start with the work of the Messiah described in verse 24. This is just obviously messianic language. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to do what? To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal to fulfill both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Who but Jesus could be said to do all that? It was his death that served as the once for all sacrifice for sin. It was his accomplishment that set up God's presence with his people. Now there's no need for the sacrifice of bulls and goats. He brings in everlasting righteousness and makes atonement for our sins. It's by his blood that our sins are washed away and we are justified in him. And he fulfilled everything written in the law of Moses and the prophets. Verse 25 says that the one to come is both an anointed one and a prince. Who but Jesus is both a priest and a king, a royal priest. Verse 25 also gives us a timeline, and this is one of the most amazing things about this promise. I'm going to read it to you from the NIV because I think it gets the sequence better than the ESV. So this is how the NIV says it, and this is how most traditional understandings of this text go. Verse 25, know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Hebrew word there is Mashiach, Messiah, the ruler, until he comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So that would be 69 sevens. Some take the whole timeline here. It's all symbolic. It doesn't refer to any specific time, just a long time, and then the Messiah will come. I'm persuaded that this is a specific amount of time God has set and that the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is a reference to the decree that King Artaxerxes, the Persian, made in 457 when he commanded Ezra to rebuild the temple. That's when the temple was restored, 457 B.C. 69 sevens is 483 years, okay? We don't count the year zero. That wasn't a year. It goes from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. 483 years after that decree from Artaxerxes brings you to 27 B.C., which is a year that many commentators and scholars believe was the year that Jesus was baptized and began his public ministry. Isn't that incredible? And verse 26 says, and after the 62 weeks, so now this would put us in the 70th week, the anointed one shall be cut off. And if people read the Old Testament, they, they read the New Testament where it says, all the prophets told you that the Messiah would die, and people look at the Old Testament and go, where does it say that? Well, right here, it says, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be cut off. And the word cut off is the exact same Hebrew word used in Leviticus 7 for the death penalty for covenant unfaithfulness, to be cut off. The Messiah is going to be killed. And the first half of verse 27 says, here's in the NIV again, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And in the middle of the seven, or the Hebrew could be translated, in the midst of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Baptized around 27 
BC, ministers for three, three and a half years. In the midst of the seven, he's cut off and puts an end to sacrifice. By his death, that is the once for all sacrifice for sin, and there is no more. After the death of Jesus, God did not accept a single drop of blood from another bull or goat or ram at all. You realize that? Just as God foretold. And by his life and his death, he does exactly what this vision says. He confirms the covenant. Some translations say he will make a covenant. The word is not make. It, will mean, it means he will cause the covenant to prevail, to be confirmed. And in his suffering, what did he do? He bore all of the covenant curses for our disobedience. And in his life, in his righteousness, what did he do? He fulfilled all the requirements of covenant obedience. And so Hebrews can say, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's Hebrews 7.22. Oh, one more thing. The the 490 years, that's 10 jubilees. 10 and 7 are significant. Uh, 10 is a number of quantitative perfection, like all the fingers on your hand. That's all of it. 10 means all of it. 7 is a number of qualitative perfection, all the days in the week, all the days of creation, including God's rest. Seven and ten gives you 70 if you multiply them, right? Ten jubilees, the perfect number of jubilees, and after that, the ultimate, the tenth, the final, the fullest jubilee, proclamation of redemption and liberty for all peoples will come with the arrival of Jesus. And what did Jesus do when he walked in the synagogue and he opened the scroll and he read from Isaiah and he said, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim liberty. That is fulfilled today in front of you. Jesus is the anointed one foretold in the vision of 70 weeks. And not only is it this powerful, incredible description of the Messiah with cross-references everywhere in the Old Testament, it's proof that Jesus of Nazareth is the only one who could fulfill that. Anybody who's still waiting or thinking the Messiah might be yet coming in the future missed it. The clock started back then with the declaration for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, and within 490 years, just as God said the Messiah came, the Messiah could not be anyone other than Jesus of Nazareth who came in history 2,000 years ago and did far more than Daniel even dared ask in his prayer for mercy. And the coming of Jesus in history Changes everything. Listen to Athanasius. He he was a 4th century church father. He he valiantly defended doctrines of Jesus is fully God and the doctrine of the Trinity. He wrote this in the 4th century A.D., 1,700 years ago. Since the Savior came to dwell in our midst, not only, listen to his optimism, not only does idolatry no longer increase, but it's getting less and gradually ceasing to be. Similarly, not only does the wisdom of the Greeks no longer make any progress, but that which used to be is disappearing. And demons, so far from continuing to impose on people by their deceits and oracle givings and sorceries, are routed by the sign of the cross if they so much as try. On the other hand, while idolatry and everything else that opposes the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and weakening and falling, the Savior's teaching is increasing everywhere. Worship, then, the Savior, who is above all and mighty, even God the Word, and condemn those who are being defeated and made to disappear by Him. When the sun has come, darkness prevails no longer. Any of it that may be left anywhere is driven away. So also, 
Now that the divine epiphany of the word of God has taken place, the darkness of idols prevails no more, and all parts of the world in every direction are enlightened by his teaching. You read optimism like that, you must think, man, Athanasius lived in good times for the church, huh? He should have lived to see these days. He would have written something different. No, Athanasius was exiled five times by three different emperors, and in his defense of Orthodox Christianity, we get that phrase, have you ever heard it, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, because he stood alone when nobody else stood with him. And he just looks back at the coming of the Messiah, and he says, the light of the world has come, and it's spreading everywhere. And if you're against him, you're in trouble, because his kingdom will fill the earth. Number three, this is short. God always keeps his promises. Another way to say that is God always administers the blessings and the curses of the covenant. Judah's exile was in keeping with the promise. I will punish you if you don't keep covenant, and it happened. And I'm concerned that some Christians today reading the Old Testament think God no longer deals with nations today like that, but he does. In fact, God gave all the nations of the earth Just think of the modern nations, the United States and Great Britain and Germany and China and Brazil and India and all the nations of the earth today can look at the history of Israel and have from God right there this gracious lesson. This is how God deals with people. Jeremiah 22, listen, many nations will pass by this city. Many other nations will pass by this city and every man will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served him. God's judgment on Israel was meant to be a lesson to all the other nations of the earth of what happens when you don't acknowledge and worship and trust and obey the one true God. And God kept that promise. He kept his promise to restore them after 70 years. We can look back now and say God kept his promise to Daniel, the vision of the 70 weeks, to send the Messiah 490 years later. Probably the most astonishing prophecy in Scripture and the detail of its fulfillment What about the language of destruction and abomination that we do see in this text? Verses 26 and 27. The second half of both of those verses say, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And on the wing of abominations, verse 27b, shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This does not forecast wars until the end of the world. It warns of the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem that would follow the ultimate covenant-breaking crime, which was God took on flesh and came to his own people, and they murdered him. That is the pinnacle of their transgression, their rejection of the covenant. And just as God warned for that transgression... The ultimate destruction and desolation, the final and full end, came to Israel, to the temple where God's presence was manifested. And the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary was destroyed yet one more time. It happened in history in A.D. 70 when the Roman legions led by Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem. The people of the prince to come, Titus and the Romans, destroyed Jerusalem. God keeps all of his promises, his warnings and his blessings. Because he keeps his word, we can be optimistic about the future. Because what does he promise? Let me, let me just give you this one from the book of Daniel. It, I hope you're catching this by now. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, there's more to come. 
It's about the coming of the Messiah. Daniel 2.35, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? The stone that struck the great image became a great mountain. Okay, that, that's the picture. A little stone topples the image and grows into a great mountain that does what? Fills the whole earth. What is that stone that grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth? The, trans, the interpretation of verse 44, in the days of those kings, that is the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed ever. His kingdom is not waning It's not diminishing, it's not weakening, it's not being extinguished. It's a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall rather break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. It may look small, even to you, but consider that the kingdom of God manifested on earth today looks way bigger and way more glorious than anything Athanasius ever saw or the disciples of Jesus saw in the first century. And just keep in mind that it's a stone growing into a great mountain that will fill the whole earth. I think that pessimist versus, pessimistic versus optimistic outlook makes all the difference in how we live our lives today. And whether we invest ourselves and pour ourselves out in creating a vibrant Christian culture for generations to come. I'm concerned that some Christians don't even think that they might have grandkids or great-grandkids or 13th great-grandkids because the world's almost over. Tim LaHaye, co-author of those famous Left Behind series books, says this, Most knowledgeable Christians are looking for the second coming of Christ and the tribulation period that he predicted would come before the end of the age because present world conditions are so similar to those the Bible prophesies for the later days. They conclude that a takeover of our culture by the forces of evil is inevitable, so they do nothing to resist it. And that is tragic when we've been given this gospel with this Savior, this kingdom, this church against whom the gates of hell will never prevail. Just just think, as one author pointed out, the cathedrals of Europe are still standing hundreds of years later. Today we live in an instant gratification culture where we don't build things to last a day beyond the mortgage because we don't think the world's going to last. Secular humanists say some climate catastrophe is going to wipe us all out in a couple days. And Christians are joining them just a different kind of catastrophe in mind. But how would you live the rest of your life if you were convinced you would have generations and generations and generations of descendants after you? Enjoying the benefits of God's blessings poured out on people who trust him and walk in his ways. Let's pray. King Jesus, we bless you. Because you are seated in the highest place. You have been given the name that is above every name. And at your name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so would you strengthen and fortify us for the times we live in to be faithful to you, to hope in your promises that you are filling the earth with the knowledge of your glory, to trust in your favor that you give your people a hope and a future, to be confident in your covenant-keeping character that all of your words prove true. 
We look to you. We have no other hope. Jesus, you have done away with our sin. And so as those who are forgiven and free, with confidence we proclaim to the world, worship with us this Christ and glory with us in this salvation. Amen. Let's stand and sing.